Well, tomorrow, at last, this divisive election will come to an end. We'll be able to put our political differences aside and come together in agreement on the fact that we hate one another more than we can possibly express. Because whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, in this country, there's one thing that unites us all. Somewhere, there's a politician who can transform our hopes and dreams into slogans and broken promises in order to gain power over us. So today, as we behold the majestic spectacle of American democracy degenerating into open civil war, I'd like to examine the effect this election season has had on ordinary Americans by taking a close-up look at one family, united in blood, but divided by politics. Meet the Smiths, from your town, my town, any town, USA. Pop Smith is a Donald Trump supporter. He used to work in the factory hereabouts until the trade deal with Mexico caused him to drink so heavily that he lost his job. Things only got worse for Pop when the Chinese started to manipulate currency and also put something in his beer that made it react badly to his prescription medicines. Technically, they weren't his prescription medicines, but someone had a prescription for them, and mixed with beer, they nearly made Pop comatose, and the Chinese were probably behind it. Today, Pop is proudly wearing a red baseball cap, bearing the words, Make America Great Again, and lying dead on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood that has leaked out of multiple butcher knife wounds to his torso. Which brings us to Mom Smith, who not only supports Hillary Clinton, but is still holding the bloody butcher knife and cursing at Pop, even though Pop is way past hearing her. Mom is sick and tired of women being held down by a glass ceiling and two bouncers who think she can't hold her liquor as well as any man. She feels it's time to think of her children, what's her name and who's it's, who are upstairs screaming like banshees because they don't have nice things like children whose parents work for a living. It takes a woman to do something about that, and if those two don't shut up, Mom is going to be the one to do it. Mom says she's voting for Hillary because Donald Trump doesn't like Mexicans, where she's always found a decent Mexican who will not only pick up the tab at closing time, but actually drive you home in the morning, assuming he can get his truck to start. Mom feels Trump's sexual abuse and bigotry just isn't who we are as a nation. It's only who we are as individuals. And Hillary Clinton has shown women how to take control of their own lives without taking any responsibility for their actions. And isn't that what women are all about? As for the kids, Billy and Sis, not their real names or genders, though who am I to judge? They just want a government strong enough and decent enough to send a patrol car <laughs> to send a patrol car to their house before mom comes upstairs. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is the Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> I feel hunky dunky, life is tickety boo. Birds are winging, also singing hunky dunky doo. Ship shaped dipsy topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. Hooray, hurrah, the Clavenless weekend has come to an end, and anything happening this week? Oh, yeah, the election. I forgot all about that. So uh, we're looking at the polls. Uh, We're going to talk about Doctor Strange, which we all saw, yes. And uh, we're going to uh, discuss uh, comic book movies in general, the superhero movies in general. But first, we've got to talk about the election, where we stand. The uh, Oh, if you notice, our, our set is a little different today because it's all been rearranged for our fantastic election coverage, where uh, Ben and I are going to uh, drink ourselves into complete uh, incomprehensibility and then mutter obscene things until it, it's all over and we're carted home. So that should be, <laughs> that should be an interesting evening. Um, 
I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, and I've already begun the drinking in preparation. So that should that should affect the show. So where do things stand? Does Trump still have a chance uh, to win? Well, interestingly enough, the two people whose uh, polling I respect most uh, both say, yeah. You know, here is uh, Nate Silver, who runs 538, looking very much like uh, Nate Silver uh, as a pollster. I had never seen him before, but he looks exactly like the guy who would sit around studying each of these polls. He's talking to Clinton hack George Stephanopoulos, uh, or as we call him, Suckanopoulos, uh, and telling where he thinks the race stands. So we show about a three-point lead nationally for Clinton, and she's about a two-to-one favorite. Um, the Electoral College math is actually less solid for Clinton than it was for Obama four years ago, where four years ago we had Obama in states totaling 320-some electoral votes. Clinton has about 270, so she's one state away from potentially losing the Electoral College. You'd rather be in her shoes than Donald Trump's, but it's not a terribly safe position. Yeah, you give her about a 65.7 about yeah. <laughs> chance to, to win. Now, this, is, this is the question I want to get to, though, because you say she has, according to your polling analysis, about a three-point lead. That was about where President Obama was mm -hmm. the Sunday before the election four years ago. Yet, and I want to put this up on the board right now, at that time you showed that he had an 85.1 percent chance uh, of winning. So, so why the contrast right there? So Clinton's a lot weaker in the Midwest, where four years ago President Obama was leading in Ohio by four points. Clinton's probably a couple of points behind there. Iowa, maybe the best poll in the country, the Des Moines Register poll showed her down seven points. In Iowa, a state she'll probably lose. Um, so the demographics of Clinton don't actually work as well when you underperform among white non-college voters. That's a good Even though the national polling is about the same. Even though, so, but it's contested in the Electoral College, and her Electoral College polling in the swing states is a little bit weaker than Obama's. The, the interesting thing about Obama is, remember, there's this margin of error. If the margin of error is, say, just say 2%, that really means it's 4% because it's 2% either way. And Obama did better in the actual election by the margin of error. He went up 3% in the margin of error. So what Silver is saying is if that works the other way around, which it very possibly could, uh, Trump will win. And here is um, Henry Olson, who is my favorite election watcher. He is, we had him on the show once, really a brilliant guy. He has spoken uh, so passionately about what the Republican Party needed to do to be, make itself a mainstream party again. The Republican Party did not listen to Henry Olson, and that is how we got Trump, because Trump is appealing to exactly the people Olson said we had to uh, appeal to. Here's what he says in today's National Review. A friend of mine just sent this to me about a minute ago, so I've only had a chance to go over it. It says, most national polls suggest that the race is over, with Clinton headed to a firm win. Of course, that's the mainstream media telling all Trump voters to stay home. And, you know, if you can't, hey, if you can't trust the mainstream media, who can you trust, right? But, he says Henry Olson, I disagree. I think it is likelier that she will win, which is what uh, Nate Silver said, but she will do so very narrowly in both the Electoral College and in the popular vote. It won't take much improvement over my final projections for Trump to pull this out narrowly. And I think it is likelier that he wins than that Clinton wins by three or more. So he's saying it is, it's going to be a nail-biter. That's basically what he's saying. And he goes on to talk about the fact that the people who are undecided and third party are largely people who would vote Republican. They're largely people who are in the Republican camp, and and people tend to come home at the last minute. That's what they tend to do. The undecideds tend to come home, and the people who say, have told pollsters they're going to be third party have tended to come home. So he thinks some, that Trump has some momentum here, and it could uh, and, and could take it out. 
he also goes on to say that he thinks the Senate, uh, the Republicans will hold the Senate narrowly, 51 to 49, with uh, obviously King and Sanders polling with the caucusing with the Democrats. And he thinks they will hold on to the House, which most people think uh, with the Republicans losing um, maybe about 10 seats, but still keeping their majority. So that's Henry Olson. So both Henry Olson and Nate Silver are saying this thing is not over. And it's th we can tell this by the way people are reacting. And that's what I'm going to talk about today is that, that this is a revelatory moment. When things, when things get tight, when things get tense, people start to behave like themselves, like them real, their real selves. It's really easy to stay cool and calm when things are cool and calm. But when things are getting tense, as they're getting tense now, people reveal themselves. So first we have James Comey. That's the big story. James Comey, remember, he had gone to Congress and he had said, oh, we uh, got new Clinton emails on Anthony Weiner's uh, computer and on Huma Abedin's computer. So we're going to have to reopen the investigation. Uh, now he's just made this statement. Never mind. <laughs> so he kind of, kind of, if Comey, if Comey has not damaged the reputation of the FBI by his leadership, I have to say the FBI has too good a reputation because really, really, we said we talked about this last week as I was going off that really what I think has happened is a civil war has broken out between the field agents. And, and you know, this is true in the press a little bit, too, except the press, the reporters have not had a civil war. But the field agents, they want to do their job. They're cops. Cops want to bust bad guys. They don't care who the bad guy is. If the, they agree with the bad guy, he's still a bad guy. If they disagree with the bad guy, he's a bad guy. They just want to know who's breaking the law. That's what field agents do. There's obviously a war between the field agents and the higher-ups, including Comey, who are either under the gun from the corrupt Justice Department, led by the blandly sinister Loretta Lynch, or they're colluding with her, you know, one or the other. So the field agents are saying, and they're, and they're leaking. And, of course, you know, here's here's Trump's reaction to the abandonment of this investigation. Hillary Clinton is the most corrupt person ever to seek the office of the presidency of the United States. The investigations into her crimes will go on for a long, long time. The rank and file special agents at the FBI won't let her get away with her terrible crimes, including the deletion of 33,000 emails after receiving a congressional subpoena. They forget about all of this. Right now, she is being protected by a rigged system. It's a totally rigged system. I've been saying it for a long time. You can't review 650,000 new emails in eight days. You can't do it, folks. Hillary Clinton is guilty. She knows it. The FBI knows it. The people know it. And now it's up to the American people to deliver justice at the ballot box on November 8th. So that's what Trump should be doing. I mean, you got to admit that Trump in these last weeks has been the candidate. If he had been this candidate all along, he would be up in the polls by 5% at least. You know, I mean, I think that this is the candidate, the guy who doesn't go off on personal attacks, who doesn't get, you know, uh, boorish and uh, start talking about, you know, start fi still fighting with Republicans over things they said about him. This is the guy he's saying you don't like what the FBI is doing and who at this point could like what the FBI is doing then convict. Convictor at the polls, it's a good message. John Podesta had his own message for the FBI. Uh, John Podesta, who, uh, of course, has been exposed as a machine, a typical Democrat machine, Paul, and all the WikiLeaks emails. Uh, here he is responding to uh, Comey. 
Tim Kaine yesterday in an interview said people within the FBI are actively working to try to help the Trump campaign. Do you believe the entire FBI announcement um, has both been a benefit to the Trump campaign and that there are forces in the FBI that are actively working against your candidacy? Look, I think what Mr. Comey did, uh, you know, just nine days ago uh, was a mistake. I think it broke with precedent. I think uh, it was criticized roundly by Democrats and Republicans, uh, including four, uh, I'm sorry, two uh, former uh, deputy attorney generals who served with him in the Bush administration. I think it was a mistake. I think what is it a mistake uh, was, that should lead Tim, to resignation? Is no, it a mistake that should lead I've to resignation? I've never questioned his motivation. I've just said it okay. was a mistake. It broke with precedent. There's a reason for that policy. Uh, it looked like that, w that uh, it was interfering in the election. I think the leaks right. that have been ongoing, which was what Tim was referring to, you know, right. is worrisome. But, I, you know, I, I think the men and women of the FBI are doing a tremendous job out here across the country. Uh, but the leakers should shut up. The leakers should shut up. You know, and that's... That would be that would be okay. I would say yes. The leakers should shut up. There's no way the FBI FBI agent should be talking to the public about an ongoing investigation on the sly. But they kept their peace for so long. I have to believe that they've just had it. You know, they just have had it with being suppressed from the top down. And when you're suppressed from the top down, you know. When you do it against the Democrats, you're a leaker. When you do it against the Republicans, you're a whistleblower. So these guys are whistleblowers. They are trying to blow the whistle on what is happening in the FBI and how Hillary Clinton is getting a pass and how this investigation has indeed, to borrow the phrase of our you know, fearless leader, Mr. Trump, that it has indeed been rigged. And that, so, you, you know, you, it's okay to tell the leakers to shut up if things are operating well. But in fact, if they're not operating well, if they're being suppressed, then... They, they're going to leak. Leakers going to leak because they got to blow the whistle. <clears throat> the other story about Podesta, do we have time to do this before we leave? Yeah, I think we'll take yeah. the time to it. Uh, the other story about Podesta, I love this story, is in the WikiLeaks is a, an email. Now, let me just get it straight because there's a lot of crazy stuff about this on the Internet. But here's the story. A performance artist, Marina Ambramovic, wrote to Podesta's brother, Tony, and said, oh, are you coming to the, the spirit cooking dinner? I'm looking forward to the spirit cooking dinner. And is, is your brother John going to come along? Tony forwards this to Podesta's email, which is how WikiLeaks hacks it, and, said, and addresses Podesta's wife, Mary, saying, are you going to come? Are you going to come to this spirit cooking thing? So what is spirit cooking? Here is, the, you're, if you're watching, you can see Marina Ambramovic doing her spirit cooking performance art. This is a, a performance work called spirit cooking. And it has to do with using bodily fluids like breast milk and semen and cooking them and and somehow this is supposed to raise spirits and it's been linked to satanism on the internet i didn't find any evidence that it actually is linked to satanism it just sounds like some kind of weird thing i believe what she's doing in this picture is painting with uh, pig's blood so podesta says well it doesn't matter what she was doing because i didn't go to this dinner but the daily wire has obtained we have obtained secret uh, footage of Podesta at this dinner, so here it is. I love sitting at the children's table. Ah, it's another boy. Mm, say you love planned parenthood. 
okay, that's disturbing. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure we should trust these people. with it. I don't know what it is, just something unnerving. All right, we're going to talk more about this, but we've got to say goodbye to our friends on Facebook and YouTube. Come over to The Daily Wire, and you can hear the rest, but if you would just subscribe, you could see it all. You wouldn't have to bounce around like this, like some kind of nomadic, no one without a home, without a family, without a life. Subscribe to The Daily Wire. You know, on a slightly serious note about this uh, satanic thing, I, uh, this spirit cooking, you know, there's something about performance art that is inherently corrupt. And one of the things about performance art that I think is interesting is it really is a throwback to the 90s when Clinton was president. Performance art was when we were all being ironic so that there was no reality. It was just all irony. There were no values. It was all irony. And we were just, we could pretend, you know, performance art was you stood out in the street and pretended you were living real life, but you were, it was really a performance. Ooh, that was so cool, so hip, so ironic. You know, then a bunch of guys flew planes into the World Trade Center, murdered 3,000 people, and thought, people started to think like, hmm, maybe life isn't as ironic as we thought it was. Maybe when you are ironic, you are still not uh, subverting reality, which trumps irony every time. And there is something about performance art that I think performance artists, when you get to see them, and even performance artists I like, I won't mention them, but I, you know, I notice that there's something wrong with them a lot of times. And, you know, I, I, I hike a lot in the canyons here, and uh, these canyons are sometimes very busy. They're urban canyons, and people are hiking. I see a lot of satanic uh, T-shirts out there, and I always feel that there's this element of irony. These are not people who either understand uh, what Satan is or what evil is. These are people playing. They're pretending because they're thinking, you know, it's like it's like shouting. It's like cursing at God if you if you don't like me, hit me with a bolt of lightning because you know that's not going to happen. And how brave you are and all this stuff, but. You know, these are people who truly do not understand how reality works. And these people who are being ironic about evil, and even these people who are being ironic about life by doing performance art, and even people who are being ironic about spirit cooking and raising spirits, they do not understand. The, the Nobel Prize winner, Bob Dylan, once wrote, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, and it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And I think these people do not understand who they are serving. So let's take a look. Let us take a look at what is happening to all these people as the crunch comes, and as the establishment and the elites start to see the possibility, now this bullet may miss them, this, you know, the train may run over them and not touch them, but they start to see the possibility that Donald Trump could actually win. Let's take a look at David Brooks discussing this election. This is this guy who came to the New York Times as uh, on, on what I call Knucklehead Row, their op-ed page, and he was supposed to be their conservative. He has just been a, a snoot. That's all I think he is. He's just a snooty, upper-class, elitist snob who has nothing con really conservative about him except his tie. And here he is discussing how this election is going to play out. At the end of the day, people are going to come home to who they were. And what's depressed me, frankly, most about this race is we went into this country, a divided nation, and now the chasms are just solidified. So divided along race, divided along gender, urban, rural, college educated, non-college educated, we can go down the list. Uh, and basically, less educated or high school educated whites are going to Trump. It doesn't matter what the guy does. And college educated going to Clinton. I mean, everyone's dividing based on demographic categories, and sometimes you get the sense that campaign barely matters. Uh, people are just going with their gene pool or whatever it is, and that that is one of the more depressing aspects 
of this race for me. <laughs> these guys, these guys got to go. Not only should they go back to England, they should go back to like 18th century England. You know, the gene pool. <clears throat> you know, it never, it never occurs to Donald Trump. It ne- to Donald Trump, to David Brooks. It never occurs to David Brooks. These people are voting their interests. These people have, you know, yesterday Jay Hay and I, our producer, went to the uh, Rams game. Which I won't. We the less said about that, the better. But uh, Jay was kind enough to give me a lift back from the stadium, and we were driving down Hollywood Boulevard. And Hollywood Boulevard is a big tourist spot where it's just one of the ugliest places in town, as far as I'm concerned. But it's where a lot of the Hollywood and Vine kind of stuff is, and there's people dressed up. It's I, I just find it really sleazy as all. But there was a bunch of people holding signs that said "Gays for Trump" and shouting at us and waving at us and all this stuff. And Jay Hay, who usually we don't allow him to talk, but, you know, it was Sunday, so I, I lifted the rules a little bit. And, and, and Jay Hay said, you know, you don't see this for a normal Republican, not just the gays standing up, but the pride, the courage, the, uh, the fact that people are not just saying, I'm a Republican. They're saying, I'm a Republican with their fists, shaking their fists in the air. And whether Trump wins or loses, that is something the Republican Party is going to have to talk to itself about and have to ask itself why we don't do that with our normal candidates. Barack Obama did it for the Democrats. Mitt Romney, no. John McCain, no. If you can't get passionate for conservative values, if you can't be stand up for conservative values as if they were not just not just okay, but the good. These are these things are the good. You know, you're not going to win elections when the other side is saying, I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll give you that, I'll give you this. You're sad, you're a victim, we can take care of you. That's going to win every time unless you can form a vision. And Donald Trump, say what you will about him, and I've said it all, is a visionary candidate, and he has inspired people, and that is something. I have to show you Bill Maher. I mean, this is amazing. I tease conservatives a lot over over being catastrophists, that if this string... If we pull this string, the entire suit of America is going to unravel. That's why people become conservatives, because they're naturally like that. They can see from any change, they can chart, connect the dots from any change to disaster. So they don't want any change. And that's why people become conservatives. Now, I'm different because I'm a conservative because I'm a liberal. I'm a conservative because I want you to be free. That's why I'm a conservative. I see the left. I see what they're doing. They're selling slavery. They're, sell- they're selling irresponsibility. They're selling, you, you know, we'll take care of you if you'll just give us all the power. But, but let's hear a little bit of left-wing catastrophizing for a change. Here is Bill Maher addressing the kids, the young people, about getting out to vote. I know you're young and idealistic, so I've heard these young people on the news and they say things like, well, Donald Trump, I don't like him, but Hillary, I can't vote for a liar. Ah. I mean, first of all, it's just apples and oranges, an orange. Um, (laughs) But kids, I've been doing this for 23 years on TV. I've seen a lot. I know politics. This is different. I promise you this will not make your life better. And also, once fascists get power, they don't give it up. You've got President Trump for life. I know liberals made a big mistake because we attacked your boy Bush like he was the end of the world, and he wasn't. And Mitt Romney, we attacked that way. I gave Obama a million dollars to throw freighter Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney wouldn't have changed my life that much, or yours. absolutely Or John McCain. They were honorable men who we disagreed with, and we should have kept it that way. So we cried wolf, and that was wrong. But this is real. Yeah. 
<laughs> we lied, and then we lied again, but now we're telling the truth. Look at that face. How can you not think he's telling the truth? I mean, this is that, that now you know, now you know everything about Bill Maher, which is that nothing he says is reliable. He's an hysteric catastrophist. And by the way, this not notion, I've had this argument on, with the never Trumpers on the right too, this idea that Donald Trump is going to come in and take over the government the way like Hitler took over the government so that there'll never be an election again is a completely ridiculous idea. I mean, this government is far stronger than, for instance, the, the German government, which was in tatters when Hitler came to power. We are a far stronger, far richer, far more civilized nation than Germany was and in that moment. Donald Trump has some instincts, some fascist violent instincts that make me ill. I've been very honest about it. I'm not going to lie about it just because I want Clinton to lose. But but that's not what's going to happen. If I had to make a prediction, and I, here, here I will, if Donald Trump wins, what we will get is a kind of medi mediocre, politically middle-of-the-road you know, presidency with a couple of moments that are going to make us all like cover our face and cringe. That's what's going to happen. And when it's, it's time to go, he will go, just like every other president before him. I had people on the right telling me that Obama wouldn't leave the White House, that he was going to barricade himself in the White House. I told them that's not going to happen. This is not going to happen either. On the other hand, talking about being inspiring, let's just talk, let's just watch Obama. I got to play this Obama talking about Hillary, uh, about how inspiring she is. Everything that we've done over the last eight years will be reversed with a Trump presidency. And everything will be sustained and built on with a Hillary Clinton presidency. So uh, this vote is as important as any of those other two votes in being able to maintain a progressive agenda that keeps 20 million people with health insurance and hopefully gets the next 20 million, that makes sure that we're working on issues like criminal justice reform and somebody who actually wants to see a reinvigorated civil rights office in the Justice Department that wants to make sure that things like early childhood education get put in place so that our young people can all get uh, the benefits of a great education at the earliest stages all the way through college. You, you can't uh, say you care about those things and then suggest somehow that uh, you're feeling cynical or you're not sufficiently inspired. I, you know, I, Michelle and I, we talk over the dinner table, we explain to our daughters, you know, not everything's supposed to be right. inspiring. Sometimes you just do what you have to do and one of the things you gotta do right now is to make sure to vote for Hillary Clinton. Boy, oh boy! So vote for Hillary. You know, vote for Hillary Clinton, or everything I do will be reversed. Uh, whose side is this guy on? You know, and, and then and then he's not inspiring. Three things that struck me about that. That was the first thing. Everybody likes people in America like Barack Obama, but nobody likes what he's done. Nobody thinks he's done a good job. They just think they like him. So the idea that what he's done would be reversed is not actually a big selling point. Next, it's that he. Why is it? Why has he been allowed to attack Donald Trump? for not disowning the KKK fast enough, but he's sitting there with Al Sharpton Jr. I mean, Al Sharpton Jr. is the KKK. He's just the other side, the other side of that, that coin, which is the same thing. And the third thing is this thing about inspiring. Hillary Clinton is not inspiring, and Donald Trump has inspired people. He has. I mean, in some ways he's done it, uh, inspired people in ways that I don't like, but he has inspired people. And he, here's the thing, you know, on the right, if we can't address these people that he's addressed, if we can't bring them out, 
for conservative values, for the values that we love, then we're going to lose everything. You know, politics is not a battle between angels and demons for the throne of heaven. It's an argument between people about how the government should be run, okay? So that means you have to compromise. You have to give, you have to make sure that people aren't starving. You have to make sure that people see the way forward. It's, it's, it's not enough anymore to say you're going to be free and now you have to take responsibility for yourself. That worked in a country that was largely religious, that was largely agrarian, that was largely, you know, uh, populated by a certain kind of human being with a certain kind of tradition. We don't live in that country anymore. And if we want to preserve the freedoms we have, we're going to have to make sure our system works. And we're going to have to learn, win or lose, we're going to have to learn from Donald Trump on how to inspire people and how to raise them up and how to calm their fears so that we can have the freedoms that we can preserve. We're just going to have to do it whether we like it or not. All right, I got to talk about Dr. Strange. Good movie, I thought. Did we like it? Yeah, it was a good movie. It was as superhero movie go, movies go. I thought it was a very good one. Doctor Strange is a uh, brain surgeon. If you haven't followed the Marvel universe, if you don't live in the Marvel universe like some people do, he's a brain surgeon who gets in an accident, loses his hands. He's desperate to get his career back because he's so brilliant, and he can't do it. And finally, he travels the world, ends up in Tibet, I think Kathmandu, right, looking for a teacher, and finds Tilda Swinton, the great monk of all time. And here, here is him talking to her. I spent my last dollar getting here. Well, my ticket and you're talking to me about healing through belief. You're a man looking at the world through a keyhole. And you spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole, to see more, to know more. And now, on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't imagine, you reject the possibility. No, I reject it because I do not believe in fairy tales about chakras or energy or the power of belief. There is no such thing as spirit. We are made of matter and nothing more. You're just another tiny, momentary speck within an indifferent universe. You think too little of yourself. Oh, you think you see through me, do you? Well, you don't. But I see through you! Pushed your astral form out of your physical form. What's in that tea? Psilocybin? LSD? It's just tea. With a little honey. <laughs> so, uh, Scott Derrickson, a fine director and a Christian, uh, selling uh, anti-materialism, which I'm all in favor of. You know, I have to be honest, if I sound a little bit under-enthusiastic, I'm, I'm, get, I'm tired of superhero movies. I'm just kind of past them, and, and this is a good one, and I like a good one. And I, I thought about it all weekend. What, what's bothering me about them? Is there something inherently wrong with them? And it, really, it's not that there's something inherently wrong with them, except that there are too many of them. There are just too many of them, one after another after another, building this Marvel universe where... You can become a complete, you can geek out into this entire world. I find something infantilizing about it. I got, I'm just going to be honest. I know this kind of makes me sound cranky, but I, I, I find that these that the vision of superheroes is almost, A, entirely desexualized. So there are no women in superhero movies. There are no women as we understand women to, in fact, be in our real lives. That takes 
because the women are all super women too, and they can fight just as well as the men. And that's just not what reality is like. I mean, part of the reason men have to be protective and strong and brave is to protect our women because we know what happens in, when the world falls apart. The first people to go are the women. They're like They can't even regulate. Even the UN and its political correctness can't even legislate against rape in wartime because rape is inherent to wartime. Rape is part of what happens when we lose civilization. It's civilization that gives us that protects us and protects those of us who can't win through pure physical means. So there's something simplistic about it. You never have to deal with real evil. There are no Muslims. There are no, there are no Islamists. It's always some evil force. You know, it's like evil with a capital E, which is not the way evil exists. Evil has to be incarnate in real life. It's incarnate by people who are complex, people who are maybe not entirely evil themselves. There's just something about the the amount, the number of these pictures that I feel creates a kind of umbrella of infantilism, even as I like, I loved uh, the first uh, Spider-Man or the second Spider-Man, whichever one it was where he hung upside down. I thought that one was great. Was that number two or one? There's all of them. There's all of them. No, where he kisses her upside down and she's in a wet t-shirt. Yeah, that's the first one. Yeah. I, I really like that picture. I like this picture. I thought this was a good one. Go and enjoy it. But, you know, I just think there's something about the number of these things, which brings me to stuff I like. And stuff I like, I want to talk about uh, versions of manhood. And so often, one of the things that feminism has done is it has divided the world of men and women with a deep black line so that where men used to be complex characters who had to fight and deal and find their courage, they now become these kind of superheroes or Schwarzeneggerian people who are just all violence, all physique, all strength and and. Uh, and those, that's kind of entertaining in its way, whereas women, women's movies are these incredible, uh, these romantic comedies that make me want to put a spike in my forehead before I look at them when I've had to sit through a romantic comedy nowadays. Old romantic comedies are great. You know, you put Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant together, you get two kind of equal, interesting people, one of them female, one of them male. It's really interesting. But now these, they're like a kind of feminine pornography. I cannot stand them. I can't stand to watch them. And so... When you go back in some of these old movies, they have versions of manhood that that have things that are attractive about them in both ways and, and complex choices that have to be made. So I want to uh, point out a movie that I've always loved. It's called The Desperate Hours. It's based on a play, and this is the 1955 version with Humphrey Bogart, not the remake. The remake is one of the worst pieces of garbage ever made, so you have to, just, you have to choose wisely. This is Humphrey Bogart is an escaped convict. This was the last time Humphrey Bogart ever played a bad guy. He's a, uh, an escaped convict, and he is being hunted all over town, so he breaks into a house where he knows there are children, and he takes over a family. He takes over this house, and this family, Frederick March, plays the father. It's directed by one of the greatest of all Hollywood directors, William Wyler, who did Ben-Hur, The Best Years of Our Lives, Wuthering Heights, Roman Holiday. He was just an absolute master of the art. Here is the trailer, which splices together a few scenes as Humphrey Bogart breaks in to this household. The early morning escape was cleverly masterminded by Glenn Griffin. He, his younger brother Hal, and another convict named Kobish brutally overpowered a guard and fled without arousing suspicion. <laughs> Take it easy, lady. Easy, I said, easy. You scream and the kid will come home and find you in a pool of blood. Dan. What are you doing here, Griffin? They're looking all over five states for you. They ain't looking here, Pop. You 
can get brave just about any time you feel like it. Any one of you. You might even get away with it. That ain't saying what's going to happen to the others. How long? About midnight, maybe sooner. What if the police come? What if they find you here? It wouldn't be pretty. If that happens, you folks get it first. Now, get out in the kitchen and cook that chicken I seen in the icebox. Do it yourself. My wife's not your servant. It's two, two men of the old days who are actually men fighting over the values and the, the way power is used and over that gun, which just becomes, uh, you know, the sort of Freudian phallic symbol. How is that gun going to be used? What does it represent? And what are people going to do with it? Uh, it's, it's an amazingly well-written and well-directed and well-acted movie. And the battle between Frederick March and Humphrey Bogart for mastery of that household is just worth watching. It's worth sitting and watching the whole thing. All right, tomorrow's election day. Don't vote if you're a Trump voter. The, man, the mainstream media will not like it. Oh, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> all right, we'll be back. We'll be uh, covering it. Uh, not only will we be doing the show in the morning and the show in the afternoon, right? Uh -huh. And we'll be here. Great. We will be here all day watching what happens. It's going to be exciting. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show.